Welcome to the Five Buy, your buy fortnightly source for rapid fire board game reviews. In this episode, Ruth goes walking in nature with trails. I'm off to space with terraforming Mars Ares expedition. Meeple Lady lives the jet set life with Pan Am. And Mike enjoys the glamour of rail travel in Ticket to Ride Europe. But first, Mason is at the marketplace with Zobek. I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Sobek. Now, I normally don't discuss expensive out-of-print games. And why would you care if I like a game you can't get a copy of? Sobek, a 2010 Bruno Cathala title from Gameworks, is so long out of production that the publisher doesn't even exist anymore. But it's had a second life recently on Board Game Arena, where you can play it for free, and I think you should. The original print run of Sobek came in the same little rectangular box as the two-player Classic of Jaipur, and I swear to God, until I sat down to write about it, I'd completely forgotten it wasn't a two-player-only game. Now, in fairness to me, pretty much everything is a two-player game in our house, and Sobek works so well at two that I don't think adding more players is really necessary. Other people agree, apparently, as the new edition, which I didn't know existed when I decided to cover Sobek, is a two-player game very cleverly titled Sobek Two Players. It's not out in English yet, but just to confuse you further, it is on BGA as well. Uh, the publisher is Catch-Up Games, who've done some pretty nice production values on some games that I thought were pretty mediocre, but they also did the extremely weird Sapiens from 2015, which I liked quite a bit, but got rid of eventually. So, the original Sobek, what is it? Well, it's ancient Egypt, because it's always ancient Egypt, and you're building a temple, and there's a marketplace, and you're trying to profit from it, which is definitely the way Egyptian microeconomics worked in the Ptolemaic dynasty. Sobek, like a lot of other games I enjoy, is rummy with a twist, essentially. You've got an opening hand, and there's a card market. You pay for the cards, but not out of your hand, which is kind of interesting. If you take the first card, it's free. But if you take cards farther down the market, the preceding items in the market go in your corruption pile. So corruption is the big twist in Sobek, but it's a little hard to wrap your head around the scoring. If you're a regular listener, you know I'm not a rules explainer guy. So if none of this makes sense, just trust me that it's interesting and it makes the game worth playing. To get what you want, you have to do some bad things. And much like all good noirs, sins must be paid for in the end. On your turn, you can lay down sets instead of taking cards. But when the round is over, your remaining hand is either scored or turns into corruption. The sets you make are valued at the number of cards times the number of value of cards. Everybody moves up the scoring track. But then you must pay your debts. And the debt is where the emergence comes in. The person who took on the most corruption in the round is going to lose points. Bear with me here, because this is weird. For every 10 points that person scored in the round, they must move back to the previous symbol on the scoreboard, matching the symbol they landed on after they scored initially. This is almost impossible to imagine without looking at the board, but instead of every space having a number on it, they have symbols. So, if you landed on an onk and had scored 22 points in the round, you'd move back two onk symbols. But if you'd scored 18 points in the round, you'd only move back one onk symbol. Getting good at Sobek, which I'm not, of course, means you're doing some quick math when you decide what score and what to hold. So it might actually benefit you to keep a set in your hand, wait till the end of the round to score at half value if you knew you'd taken more corruption in the round and the full value of it would push you over into another penalty. There's this whole other aspect in Sobek, which is very gamery, um, but I don't know, I'm not totally sold on. There are character cards and event tokens that 
I don't know, do stuff. It's not quite into, like, special powers territory, which you know I despise, but I guess I should play Sobek without these elements sometime to see how I like it. They certainly add something to the game, I'm just not sure they're actually necessary. The character cards do pretty standard special stuff. Draw three cards, opponent discards a card, steal a card, add a card from your hand to a set you've already played, etc. The character cards are in the card market, but they're face down, so you don't know which one you're going to get when you take one. They're fine, they don't really get in the way of gameplay, though if you don't like confrontation, some of them might make you upset. Though if you don't like confrontation, you might not like two-player games in general. I'm more skeptical of the event tokens, which uh, feel a little fussy and almost more like an expansion than a core component of gameplay. Every time you lay down a set, you look through the tokens and use one. So it's a bonus for laying down sets, but you already get a bonus because there's not really any benefit for holding sets in your hand until the end of a round unless you're trying to game the corruption system. There's nothing at all wrong with the event tokens, but I just don't think it would hurt to play without them. As I get older, and the number of different games that I've played creeps toward the 2000 mark, I'm less and less interested in games that add extra stuff to make them more interesting. If anything, I'm interested in games that take away stuff to make them more interesting. So anyway, who should play Sobek? People who have a computer and like playing games online, because the original copies go for way more than this game is worth. People who like a rummy game with some other stuff thrown in. People who don't mind a slightly wonky scoring system and people with a strong suspension of disbelief or the ability to ignore a theme that doesn't exactly make that much sense. I give Sobek 5 out of 6 baskets of ivory tusks on cards that I am disgusted by and would love to never see in a border card game again, quite frankly. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost and on Board Game Geek and Board Game Arena as Breakfast Core. Keep wearing a mask, keep keeping your distance, and if you're not vaccinated yet, get vaccinated as soon as you're able. Hello, 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here. Now, while I tend to stay indoors as much as possible during the height of the summer, many people are currently headed outside, so it seemed only appropriate to talk about a game themed around doing just that. Published by Keymaster Games in 2020, Trails puts two to four players into the role of hikers, offering up a light 20 to 40 minute trek through America's national parks. The game is currently available at Target stores in the US and is the latest in Keymaster's Parks series of games, all of which use art from the 59 Parks Prince series. In Trails, players are hiking back and forth, gathering resources, and taking photographs of their trip at various sites along the way. As they hike, players can also encounter wildlife in the form of a bear meeple, and at both the trailhead and trail end, they can use the resources they've gathered to earn merit badges. Once the sun leaves the trail and the game ends, players will earn points for their badges, their photos, and for the birds they've seen along the way. The game is incredibly easy to set up and teach. Shuffle the trail sites and line them up between the trailhead and trail end. Put the sun above the trail end, the bear on the middle site, and the game's resources and photos nearby. Then deal out two badge cards to either end of the trail, give each player a water canteen and a secret badge card, then place their hiker meeple on the trail ready to go. On a player's turn, they'll simply move one or two spaces for free, or flip their canteen to its empty side to move as many spaces as they wish in the direction they're facing. After they move, they take the action of the site they've landed on, and if the bear is also on that site, they get to roll the wildlife die and take the action of the space shown, moving the bear there. If a player reaches the trail head, they can refill their canteen, complete badges from those at the location or held in their hand, and then turn around to start hiking in the other direction. 
Reaching the trail end has the player take the action being pointed to by the sun, before moving it one step further and flipping the tile it just left to an upgraded nighttime side. The player then has the chance to complete badges as before, and then they'll turn around to head back the other way. Players continue to move back and forth from trailhead to trail end until the sun has moved off of the trail entirely. It will then be placed in front of the player who triggered its movement, and all other players get one more turn before they count up their points and declare a winner. Trails is a game about managing resources and managing your movement. Players can only carry a maximum of 8 resources, and the badge cards are going to ask for between 3 to 6 of them. So players will need to plan ahead, and since all but the card held in their hand are publicly available, they'll need to either have a plan B for if and when someone takes a badge before them, or make good use of their canteen to skip ahead and make sure they arrive first. This prevents the game bogging down with everyone slowly taking every single action spot in turn and adds a racing aspect, especially as some badges offer valuable resources or actions as their rewards along with endgame points. Chaining these badge rewards can be incredibly helpful as it often allows for the completion of another badge or for the acquisition of more photos. Pulling off a great combo in this way feels incredibly satisfying, and the urgency when you spot the potential for one really drives the need to beat your fellow hikers. And there's the fact that using the wildlife die potentially moves the bear, which means that the second you start to roll, everyone wants to know if that bear is going to end up in a better or worse place for their turn. It all helps make trails an efficiency puzzle that manages to include enough luck and incitement to keep everyone interested, and that makes for a great gameplay experience. Experience. As mentioned, the bulk of the art used in Trails comes from the 59 Parks print series, which had a group of artists create poster designs celebrating and raising funds for America's national parks. The artists specifically featured in Trails are Benjamin Flo, Little Friends of Printmaking, Dan McCarthy, Nicholas Delore, Daniel Danger, Glenn Thomas, and Chris Turnham, and the exact information about who illustrated each featured park is found on the back of the rulebook, along with the individual website addresses should players wish to see more from the artist. Park illustrations aside, the icons and badge cards are charming, with the latter having a whimsical flavor that matches the slightly retro feel of the posters. All components are great quality, from the tiles and cards to the wooden hiker meeples and die. However, I do have to point out that the resource cubes are small, and unfortunately the grey rocks and green leaves aren't the easiest to tell apart under electric lighting. I'm actually considering replacing the resources in my copy for this reason, as it does get somewhat frustrating. Trails is a small box containing a lot of great gameplay that works in many situations, mainly thanks to its short playtime and accessible rule set. The game is playable with different degrees of gamer, from those interested in a casual chatty experience while ooing and aahing over the art, to those determined to puzzle out every efficiency while playing a quick game to start or end a night of heavier fare. Cube colors aside, it's a joy to play, and I'm looking forward to seeing it hit my table over and over. And that's why I have to recommend giving it a try if you get the chance. Now until next time, I'm going to be viewing the great outdoors from inside, but feel free to let me know your favorite hiking spot. You can find me on Twitter at Roof, that's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Do you like Terraforming Mars, but wish it was a bit snappier? If so, you might want to check out Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition, the new game by Sidney Engelstein, Jacob Frixelius, and Nick Little. Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition was published in 2021 by Frix Games, the Frixelius family board game business. 
and it's hot off the presses. I just got my Kickstarter copy, but it is available retail as a Target exclusive. While Ares Expedition shares a lot with original Terraforming Mars, it is a standalone game, not an expansion. I'll be discussing both games with the assumption that you're somewhat familiar with Terraforming Mars. If you want a refresher, check out the excellent previous 5 by reviews by Lydia in episode 94 and Ruel back in episode 67. At first glance, Ares Expedition looks much like the original Terraforming Mars. You play cards that give you production of resources that you collect on a player mat and use to terraform Mars via the oxygen track, temperature track, and ocean tiles. But there are key differences. Elements like placing tiles on the map, milestones, and awards are missing. And the main difference is that at the start of each round, each player chooses one type of action, or phase, they want to do. Players reveal their phases at the same time, and those are the only phases that happen in that round. If this sounds a lot like Race for the Galaxy, you're not wrong. We've been calling Ares Expedition Race for the Terraforming Mars. I like the action selection mechanism. It makes games snappier, faster paced, because all players do each phase simultaneously. You don't ever sit and wait for others to do their turn. Unless for some reason you were unable to do a phase, which does happen sometimes. The phases are playing a green card, playing a blue or red card, doing actions on cards, production, and drawing cards. You have to plan carefully because each phase only happens if someone chooses it. If all players chose the same phase, only that one thing happens that round. Also, each phase is limited in the number of times you can do it. There's no more going around the table doing two actions at a time as long as you can. When it's time to play green cards, you can play one green card. That's it. The psychological element of guessing what phase your opponents will choose is, I think, the only interaction in Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition. I don't think I've seen the entire deck yet, but I've never seen a card that would let you take something from another player. I don't personally like the mean cards, so this is a big plus for me in Ares Expedition. But if you're a fan of Take That, you might regret the loss of it. While Ares Expedition is streamlined in some key ways, it still very much retains the feel of original Terraforming Mars. That's a great thing. I backed Ares Expedition because I love Terraforming Mars, and I would have been disappointed if it didn't feel like Terraforming Mars. However, much as I love it, original Terraforming Mars is fiddly, and Ares Expedition is too. There's a lot to keep track of and remember, especially when you start chaining cards together. I think novice mistakes are maybe more likely to happen in Ares Expedition, because with simultaneous turns, the experienced players are less likely to notice if a new player, say, forgets that their TR rating is included in income, or forgets to raise their TR rating when they increase one of the tracks or forgets that they have a card that gives them heat production for every earth tag, so when they play a new card with an earth tag, they need to increase production, or any one of the many little details you have to keep track of in this game. Another concern is that runaway leader seems to be a problem. I've heard various theories that it's caused by this mechanism being overpowered or that one being underpowered, but I think what's really overpowered is lucking into a great card combo very early in the game. It's happened in nearly half the games I've played, and I've seen people do it with plant production, steel production, and with actions on blue cards. So I don't think it's the specific mechanism. I kind of think that in original Terraforming Mars, there's just so much more going on that if the players are evenly matched, it's harder for someone to run away with it on sheer luck. There's usually some way to catch up. 
That said, I really enjoy Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition. It basically feels like a faster-paced Terraforming Mars, with better art and component quality. The card art in Ares Expedition is attractive and consistent, which is a huge improvement over the original. Which, I'm not gonna lie, the card art in Terraforming Mars looks to me like they made a prototype with stock art they grabbed from a Google image search, and then they forgot to swap in the real art before they went to production. The Ares Expedition player boards are also a massive improvement over the much maligned original. They're thick, two-layer cardboard with notches to keep your resource cubes in place. I've played Ares Expedition with one, two, and four players, and enjoyed it at all those player counts. The solo rules are very similar to the ones in the original. You have a certain number of rounds and have to terraform Mars before the timer runs out. I love the original as a solo game, and this one I think will become a solo staple as well. There are also two-player co-op rules, which are a slight variation on the solo rules. Nice to have another option when we play at home. And that's Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition, one of the first board games I played with people I don't live with in 16 months, which was a lot to live up to, and it did. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you want to talk about killer card combinations in Terraforming Mars. Then I really want to hear from you. I played a lot of Pan Am last year in 2020, but only as a two-player game. I loved it then, and it easily would have been one of my favorite games of last year if I had written a top 10 list on my blog. It wasn't until this year, when I started playing games in real life with vaccinated friends, that I got a chance to play Pan Am as a four-player game, and the experience was just as enjoyable. Pan Am, released in 2020 by Funko, with Prospero Hall both designing the game and doing its artwork, is a 60-minute, two-to-four-player game. It has all the elements I enjoy, worker placement, bidding and route building, and blocking, all packaged in a gorgeous game. The game also comes with plastic planes and airport towers, and handy-dandy trays for sorting and keeping it all together. And for a company that hasn't existed for almost 30 years, that iconic blue circular logo immediately transports you to the golden age of flying, when traveling was both classy and chic. In Pan Am, players are competing to build a network of air travel. They're bidding for airport landing rights, purchasing planes that fly to farther destinations, claiming routes, and buying Pan Am stock. You're also trying to create favorable routes in order for Pan Am to purchase them at a profit, so you can invest in growth for your company. The game plays for seven rounds, and at the start of each round, an event card is drawn. These events tweak the rules for the round and affect the stock price of Pan Am. The goal of the game is to have the most Pan Am stock, and while it's good to purchase the stock early while the price is still low, you usually don't have enough income to do so. For a 4P game, you start with three engineers, and this number varies based on player count, and you take turns placing one engineer on action locations on the board. Some of these locations have numbers on it, so placing your engineer represents your bid for that action. Another player on a future turn can outbid you by placing their engineer on a higher-valued spot in that location. Your engineers then return to you to place somewhere else or at a higher valued spot in that original location on your turn. All the locations with the bid can only have one winner on it when resolving. Other locations, like claiming routes, resolve in placement order and don't require a bid. This makes claiming routes especially tight as your opponent may want to build before you and ruin your plans. To build a route between two cities, you'll need landing rights either by having an airport in one of the cities you're connecting having the city's destination card in your hand, 
discarding a card in your hand from the same region as one of the cities you're connecting, or discarding two cards from the same region that's different than the one that you're connecting. Lastly, you'll need a plane from your fleet that can fly the route between the two cities. You place the plane on that route and then your income increases by how long that route was. The last location is directives. This allows players to draw a directive card, which gives them a one-time or endgame bonus and can be powerful and played during the right phase. This location also allows your engineers to get priority access during the next round, meaning you'll get to place your engineer first before the first player takes their turn. Once everyone places their engineers, resolve each location in order, paying your bid if you need to. If you're unable to pay your bid, you have to sell back any Pan Am stock you have at a half price to gain some money for that bid. The last phase of each round is the Pan Am phase. This is where Pan Am expands along one route, hopefully on a route you've already built so you can sell it to them. When you sell them a route, you get a payout based on how large it is, and your plane was returned to your fleet. Your income, however, does go down, but the nice profit bump is well worth it. Players then get their income, have the option to buy as many Pan Am stock as they want, and move on to the next round. The player with the most Pan Am stock, after 7 rounds, wins. I absolutely love the bidding mechanism of this game. It makes all your actions extremely tense, whether it's a 2P or a 4P game. Players might be fighting for that one destination card that satisfies the route they want to build, or maybe you'll spend your action to be the first to build a route this round. You gotta keep an eye for what your opponents are planning. Pan Am is super enjoyable, and the retro artwork and beautiful destination cards are just as delightful, transporting you to an era when traveling was mostly stress-free and you actually had some elbow room on your flight. It perfectly blends all these different game mechanisms, the worker placement, the bidding, the route building, into a great game for newer gamers and experienced gamers alike. And that's Pan Am. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Hello, friends. It's Mike here, stuck in the middle of the doldrums of COVID gaming still. Still stuck at home, still struggling to get games played. I know a lot of people are gaming in person again, hopefully taking reasonable precautions still. But if you're stuck at home like me, well, at least we aren't alone. But in a fortuitous stroke, Days of Wonder just released a new large box anniversary edition of Ticket to Ride Europe. Eleanor Moon's Ticket to Ride is kind of the elephant in the room that we haven't discussed much, outside of Ruel talking about Ticket to Ride on our 100th anniversary episode, and Mason covering the newer Pared Down Ticket to Ride New York in episode 59. Which is kind of a shame, given its status as a great intro to the hobby and the longevity of the series. I used to get every release, every map pack, everything, until I just couldn't keep up anymore. That's not a knock on the series. The latest edition I got of Japan and Italy was solid. So solid that I can't even get my family to flip the map over to try the Italy side. But that can wait for a later review. In this review, let's discuss Ticket to Ride Europe. Ticket to Ride Europe is often called the quote-unquote gamer's edition, by frankly snobby people who you shouldn't associate with. It follows the same basics as base Ticket to Ride, where you're drawing tickets and trying to get from one city to another, as denoted on the ticket, by putting down colored cards that match the track section between each city along the specified path. Claiming a route gets you points. The longer the route claim, the more points. And then when those two routes connect the cities you need, then you'll get points for completing that ticket at the end of the game. The main step up in complexity for Ticket to Ride Europe are the tunnels, ferries, and stations. 
All three would have worked fine in the US map, but that makes a fine intro map, with Europe being just a little bit more. To get through the mounds of Europe, we must complete a tunnel section, which building a tunnel takes some risks of the unknown. So to claim a tunnel, you lay down the cards you need, say two green, and then draw three cards off the top of the face down train deck. If any of those tickets are green or engines, then you must play more green or engine cards to match that number. Otherwise, collect your initial cards back into your hand and your turn is over. You can try again later for better luck, or prepare better by getting more contingency cards. And this is where we clearly ditch the you're not building track, you're just running along the rails theme logic, because if I were just riding the rails, it wouldn't matter how long or short the tunnel was. But maybe it's just me who thinks that. Ferries are how you cross water in case you want to escape Brexit to the Netherlands or France. You complete the ferry route like normal, except you must play an engine for each space that shows an engine. If you want to use more as wilds later, that's great, but you must have at least the one or two shown on the route. The last and quote-unquote most gamery addition are the stations. Stations are placed in cities at the end of the route, and at the end of the game you may use each station to claim usage of a connecting route that's been taken by another player. You can use that station for multiple tickets, but only claim one route into or out of the city, so you can't switch to fulfill multiple tickets. At the end of the game, any unused stations is worth 4 points. A lot of people play this up as a difficult Sophie's Choice sort of situation, but given that uncompleted tickets count negatively against you at the end of the game, I generally find it more of a Hobson's Choice. Sorry to be blunt. So what do we think of Ticket to Ride Europe? Well, it's fine. A friend posted the question on Twitter, what if you could only keep one edition of Ticket to Ride? And frankly with that limitation, Europe would not be at the top of my list. That would be Switzerland or Nordic. Maybe Japan, as that's grown a lot on me. Switzerland has tunnels, though it isn't exactly standalone as you need pieces and cards from another set, and while Nordics has both ferries and tunnels, it maxes out at three players. Interestingly, none of the later editions I'm aware of has stations. Proof again to me that the quote-unquote most gamery part of Europe doesn't really add as much as some people think. But again, I suppose that's just my opinion. But Ticket to Ride Europe is my most played version as we play it online with family, and frankly, I like the tunnels and ferries. The ferries are fairly simple, but a nice extra little something. The randomness of tunnels can really ruin your endgame rush to finish up some tickets, and normally I hate randomness, but hedging with two extra cards usually does it, so it's sort of an extra turn or two at most. Is the Anniversary Edition worth it? Well, again, your mileage may vary, but I got it even though it's not my favorite edition. The train pieces are useless for other expansions as they're too big, but the overall table presence is great, just like the 10th Anniversary Base Game Edition. I suppose it's a matter of taste. Do you like or have nostalgia for this edition? Have you played with the tunnels and ferries in other editions and really like them and therefore want this edition? All excellent questions you'll have to answer for yourself. As for differences in the two other than art and fancy train pieces, the only difference that affects gameplay is a few more destination tickets, which, like the original, certainly didn't lack for destination tickets, so take that as you will. And that's Ticket to Ride Europe. I hope this clarifies the differences so that you can make a decision for yourself if this is an edition that you want, especially before you plop down a larger chunk of change for the new Anniversary Edition. If you wish to discuss any Ticket to Ride editions further, you're welcome to reach out to me on Twitter, at Mike Risley. You've been listening to The 5 by your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or visit our website at 5 
If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash 5 games. From all of us at the 5 thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.